The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Well, generally, I think when you talk to anybody in the industry, everybody thinks that they are going to be the last reasonable person in the room, effectively. So everybody else needs to accept that prices have come down and it's going to be your opportunity to buy is kind of the, the I think, the optimistic take that's usually uh, spun out to you when you when you chat to folks in the industry. Obviously, there are two parties to any transaction. That was a snippet from our conversation with Jonathan Guilford, who covers private equity for breaking views in the U.S., Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm Amy Donlan. And I'm Anita Ramaswamy. And this week, we're doing a deep dive into the opaque world of private equity. So stay tuned for The Views Room, the weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where Amy and I talk to our fellow columnists about the big stories of the week. We're coming to you from London and New York. It's pretty quiet in the world of private equity. On this side of the pond, it's been a famine of large leveraged buyouts. I feel like in the pandemic, I was constantly covering a big, chunky, you know, LBO like Morrison's, which is a supermarket in the UK. So, Anita, what's it like over in the US at the moment? Are you guys getting your teeth into anything, anything big? Are there deals happening? On the LBO side, things have been pretty quiet and pretty slow here as well. I mean, in general, M&A has been pretty quiet. And 2023 was just a year where there was a slump in deal making. So, you know, maybe things will pick up in 2024. We'll see. But I think the situation here is quite the same as what you described. And we're fortunate to have Jonathan Guilford, who covers private equity for Breaking Views. Uh, Jonathan, you're very welcome back to the Views Room. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jonathan, I'm so curious. I mean, we we sort of at Breaking Views, we sort of, you know, as shorthand, we call these these companies buyout houses. Uh, but we're not seeing many buyouts as of late. So what can you tell us is going on with private equity? So, I mean, it really depends on which kind of the part of the market that you're looking at, right? There's still this long tail of, you know, buyout shops like you would think of them as. They go out, they raise some money from big institutional investors like pension funds, et cetera. They do deals and that's really kind of what they're focused on. But, you know, I think what we think of when we think of the space are the folks who are uh, as close to a household name as a private equity house is going to be. So it's like the KKRs, the Carlisles, the Blackstones, the Apollos. And for them, definitely, I mean, you can see it in the results, like even for the Colossuses, like there are no deals happening. There was maybe the indication of a slight uptick at the end of last year. But this is really a place where, you know, you're beginning to see them. Well, not beginning. I mean, they are now really leaning on other businesses that aren't really what we think of as private equity. So can we can we call them, Jonathan, buyout houses? I mean, that does that label work anymore? Because what are they doing if they're not doing buyouts? Well, you can call them that, but they resent it. Uh, the The industry prefers to call itself alternative asset management these days. Um, and if you think about it, it's really you and I, we can go out, we can buy shares of a public company, we can you know, invest in government treasuries, but there's this whole universe of investments that really the ordinary person on the street can't get access to. And these kind of alternatives, that's really that bucket. It's those private sort of illiquid asset classes that go way beyond just ordinary buyouts. So you're looking at kind of, you know, debt offered to companies uh, that's originated from a Blackstone or a KKR's balance sheet rather than coming from a bank. 
you know, you're thinking about kind of big real estate businesses that have grown up within these companies. You're thinking about infrastructure investing. You're thinking about all kinds of things that are really just like a little off the run uh, versus what you might think of as, you know, company Y buys company X with six tons of leverage. So Jonathan, you mentioned debt specifically, and I was just thinking, you know, given how high debt costs are these days and the current economic backdrop that we're living through, how have these companies changed the way that they seek returns? You know, the KKRs, the Carlyles and Apollos of the world. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, right, all of that is a benefit for anybody who's lending at a floating rate. So typically, if I'm going to KKR and I'm like, I've got this fantastic deal that I'm going to do. I'm going to buy Amy's ice cream stand. Um, I need some debt to do it. They're going to offer that to me and I'm going to pay them interest usually on, you know, kind of a base rate. So uh, the interbank lending rate or SOFA um, plus a spread. And now as kind of Fed rates have gone up, that that kind of base part of that goes up as well. So you're still paying the spread over that higher and higher rate. So to a certain extent, it's all rainbows. Obviously, gets a little bit complicated because now all of a sudden, Amy's ice cream stand was able to cover its debt like multiple times over a couple years ago, and now she's looking at interest costs basically washing out her cash flow. So it becomes a bit of an issue, and that's been really like the big conversation over the past year, I think, for these these places. It's how do they handle that kind of rising tide of distress? You know, to what extent is there that tide? Do we see that accurately reflected? in kind of um you know public reports by you know captive business development companies or anything like that it's it's a question of how much you know work is being done by these uh buyout shops turn lenders to both like manage those risks and also kind of work with those companies to avoid default i'm kind of curious right so these companies as i mentioned like a good few years ago as i said we were covering very big lbos so those companies were bought they are now owned by private equity companies and the idea is right that they load them up with debt they can sometimes consolidate them with other companies they own and then the idea is that they they list them out onto the public market or they sell them on to somebody else but we're not again seeing much of that so again the ipo market is pretty quiet so what is there when you talk to these companies, what are they thinking about that? Are they sort of getting more realistic when it comes to valuations? Are they ready to kind of to, to kind of reopen the IPO market? Well, generally, I think when you talk to anybody in the industry, everybody thinks that they are going to be the last reasonable person in the room, effectively. So everybody else needs to accept that prices have come down and it's going to be your opportunity to buy is kind of the the I think the optimistic take that's usually uh spun out to you when you when you chat to folks in the industry. Obviously there are two parties to any transaction. Everybody is going to have to accept some kind of price reset. I and mean, that's why investors pay these managers. Like they expect them to be on the better side of that transaction more often than not. Um but so yeah I mean I think that that kind of bid ask spread that's been you know kind of thing number one like Public valuations have gone down. So presumably, you know, private comps have gone down. Folks need to accept that like peak 2022 valuations aren't there anymore. And I mean, you see that really acutely in like the tech market and whatnot. And, you know, some folks will be forced into that by the debt issues we were talking about earlier. Some folks just need an exit. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, um, we see now that the investors who are kind of backing these these buyout funds aren't getting the distributions back out because, you know, you're not selling companies, you're not able to realize that cash, you're not able to ship that back off to the investors who have backed you. You've seen like 
a big growth in uh, what we call the secondary market. So, you know, uh, I'm an investor. I hold a chunk, you know, I hold a chunk of this fund because I backed it. I sell that on to like another investor directly. Um, we've seen that get, you know, combined with, oh, well, let's do that in a deal where you also commit to funding in the next fund, et cetera. So like there are all kinds of weird like edge ways to kind of keep the momentum going in the system. Obviously, though, at some point, like there is no substitute for deals. It's interesting that you mentioned distributions. I saw, um, I cover venture capital and I saw a pitch book report recently that was saying that distributions are at a 14 year low in that part of the private market. So definitely some of the same kind of issues extending over into venture as well. Um, but Jonathan, I know we're coming out of earnings season right now and a lot of these big buyout shops just um, re reported their earnings results. What can we glean from, you know, those recent quarterly calls that you listened into? I mean, really, like one of the big things is, you know, we talk about how these aren't buyout shops anymore. These are alternative asset managers, et cetera. Really, this quarter was kind of a crystallization of that. And really, all of 2023 was you saw uh, Apollo Global Management, especially if you ever listen into to one of those calls, uh, their boss, Mark Rowan, is, you know, very straightforward about um, uh, kind of laying out this grander vision of of what the industry is. Uh, how it's moving beyond kind of just the straight, you know, buying and selling of assets. And I mean, Apollo's results, you see they're growing distributable earnings um, or their equivalent of distributable earnings. Uh, every quarter, they're back above their, their kind of, you know, um, peak during the COVID era, whereas other shops are not. But everybody is beginning to kind of get that kind of, I guess, that that story in line about how they are no longer so tied to the buyout cycle. You saw KKR. Has is going to be changing its reporting structure. Um, they kind of bought out the rest of this large insurer that they, um, uh, the piece that they didn't own. So they're becoming more of like this kind of balance sheet heavy business. You have Blackstone, which is the largest of the alt managers. It is, you know, sort of unparalleled in the way that it's gotten individual, like small time investors to kind of pile into these very large funds and drive huge fees from that. And then at Carlisle, you've got um, uh, Harvey Schwartz, who's now been in the job for a year, he kind of set out turnaround targets, and there's a big kind of drive there to become less kind of leveraged that that buyout part of the business. So everybody is rowing away from that. The easy thing for them is 2024. Everybody expects it's going to be a good year for deals, so everybody's going to look great no matter what comparatively to 2023. It is real that everybody has changed, that they have moved away from buyouts, but like. That's still a chunk of the business, and that is going to be kind of the wind under everyone's wings a little bit in the months ahead. I was kind of curious, Jonathan, just um, there's obviously an awful lot of talk about succession in these companies. Sometimes they've had people at the top for a really long time. And when you have a change, almost like an identity the, in what we're seeing at the moment, do you think it's more likely that you could see some of these kind of titans at the top step aside or... I mean, it's interesting because Rowan at Apollo was really crucial to the refashioning of the firm that we've seen now. He was sort of the motive force behind setting up the insurer that Apollo ended up merging with. He's been crucial to this turn to all of these asset-backed debt strategies that Apollo is really ahead of the industry on. So he came in, took over the top job at in 2021. 
Uh, you have Harvey Schwartz, who's new at Carlisle. Obviously, at Blackstone, you still have Steve Schwartzman in the top role, but John Gray is sitting as COO at KKR. You have the co-CEO roles. So it feels like a lot of the changes that we've seen at these firms don't necessarily demand any sort of subsequent changeover in leadership, just because to a certain extent, that leadership has already turned over, but also just because the people who are at the top now really are kind of avatars of what their firms have become. They really represent this moment for the industry. So Jonathan, these challenges that we're seeing in private equity with the slump in making, do you think that they're cyclical and just part of the natural cycle of how private equity evolves? Or are they a longer term problem that investors should be concerned about? I mean, to a certain extent, there is always going to be a cycle, right? Like, unless we we somehow abolish boom and bust, uh, there's always going to be a time when debt is going to be more expensive, valuations are going to be on the downturn, credit markets will be operating less efficiently. Like, that is always going to happen, and you're always going to see that affect the buyout business. In terms of whether there's other structural stuff happening in the industry that maybe, you know, changes that going forward, like, obviously... Like I said, the firms are becoming less leveraged to buyouts. But within that, you know, the way that the secondary market has evolved, the kind of complicated linkages between um, the investors behind the funds as well as the funds themselves, you see, you know, more private equity to private equity transactions these days. You see um, really just like a lot of changes that we haven't had a chance to kind of see play out in the longer term and kind of structurally how that might affect the industry. You know, it's a question of how whether those things end up kind of being like pro-cyclical eg they they end up that there's some kind of feedback mechanism within them that that makes uh dips and rises um more severe or if they end up being you know something that smooths that out but i think that's just something that's really hard to tell right now well fascinating stuff jonathan thank you so much for for joining us today and uh, hopefully we'll all get to sink our teeth into some nice big buyout soon Oh, from from your lips. Yep, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much, everyone. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on breakingviews.com and on X, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.